0: Come back to Chasing Squirrels. Uh, I'm I, I'm slightly giggly, but part of it is I'm just, I'm, I, I feel like we've already had the podcast. We've done an on-ramp. We've spent, uh, you know, just somewhere just around 45 minutes chatting up, catching up, I guess. Uh, Jen Brown, I didn't even ask you. Jen Brown, Jennifer Brown, which one which one's better?
1: Jennifer, if you feel formal, Jen is more likely what I'll answer to.
0: <laughs> Keeping it fancy. Uh, Aww. <laughs> Okay, let's do Jen. Let's roll with Jen. So I'm talking with Jen Brown today. Uh, The only thing I'm going to throw in as part of the intro is that this convo is two years in the making. That's why I think our initial 45 minutes of on ramp was necessary. You simpatico with that? Kind of took A little bit of of play time. Yeah. So um, as I've asked, you know, other guests, could you, could you, would you throw down a little bit of an introduction for yourself?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm Jen Brown, and I am currently teacher librarian, um, at a K to eight school in the Peel District School Board. Uh, we are a French immersion, uh, English, uh, track school. I am not bilingual, but the kids are helping me do some relearning there, which is nice. Um, I opened that library from scratch, which was a, incredible journey. Um, My background before that, I actually started teaching in the Toronto District School Board in 1998, just as amalgamation happened, which was an interesting journey. Um, And then um, moved to Peel in 2007. And um, a lot of my teaching experience, although there's classroom experience certainly in there, a lot of my teaching experience has been um, in special education and English as a second language. Um, And then um, I got in my opinion, to do the best job in the school, which is have one foot in coaching and mentoring as teacher librarian, working with staff and the other foot working with the entire school student population every day.
0: That's solid. And I'm going to throw down. So, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm not like, we're not fancy here, but uh, (laughs) yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast and just to land lightly. So the, the two year gap, in our Mm -hmm. connectivity. And I mean, we've, we've exchanged online digital hallways, you know, we've, Uh we've had connection there. There's sort of like started, but not, uh, you know, it's not a forgotten relationship Go, I got to go back just to how I first, how we first met just momentarily, because I think that there's uh, in big picture, kind of EDU, like in our school boards and, and, you know, in our schools, there's this constant drive to make things happen fast. And we're delivering whether it's lessons or connections or resources the um the the, the speed uh, the and creative kind of like cycle sometimes from the outside can seem like um like it happens overnight and i've i've had some of the cool conversations i've had recently is like no like there's a whole lot of life that kind of happens in the background and it's it doesn't translate that quickly and i think this conversation in a lot of ways is representative of that. So, two two years ago, I decided that uh, I want to check out a conference in Toronto that you were, and I am going to get it wrong. Maker Ed to, yeah,
1: no, you got it right.
0: Okay, cool. Maker Ed to. um I don't have any particular affiliation, or uh, it's not a yes. I have to add this into my um, my toolbox. I just thought, you know what? I have a little bit of breathing space, so this is where life allowed me to learn. So nothing was going on the first week of July, which is, was, is rare with, you know, having a family. Right. So I get to mm-hmm. Toronto, I check it out. It was a cool conference. I meet you. We sort of, uh, the keynote activities, I sort of, uh, was a part of a conversation that was a table activity, which kind of changed my trajectory there. So I ended up going to your, your presentation and then it started my path of kind of considering what elements, n- n- let's say not maker, what elements of Maker was I already doing and was I kind of like not even realizing I was doing? That's kind of the big picture, let alone the fact that what I got at, let's say a taste or a peak of um, you as Jen and then you as what you're doing as Jen in your school sort of interested me. So it's that being a seed point, you know, that's two years is a long time to sort of wait to have kind of a face-to-face. But I think it's also important to kind of mention like, this is This is kind of how we do as well. It's not always quick, and no matter how much you can share online, kind of getting to a table where you can hash it out is um that's a prize for me, so I'll say one well, I'll probably say it again thanks for
1: for making the time to come and hang.: No, thank you, and you know it's funny because i I have harbored some guilt over the two years like of oh I haven't made it work, and I haven't you know i i who knows what I'm going to say as the podcast continues. I could regret saying this even but um, <laughs> I I I am more uh proud of the work that I'm doing now than I even was then and I and that's not to devalue the journey but I have shifted and so I am I I think more um excited to have this conversation now um, because I even some of the things I said then some of them still hold true and some of them I'm still very you know passionate about and some of them have evolved for me and that would be true again obviously if we spoke in another two years hopefully I would still be evolving but I think um, I think I bring a different angle to the conversation that I would have even two years ago so yeah I'm excited to be here.
0: That, that sort of long game reflective practice. Is it, is a bit of, um, Mm -hmm. or is it the reflective practice about reflective practice? I had someone, no, no, it's the kind of, yeah. um,
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's an endless cycle of like, am I thinking about thinking too much? It's that metacognitive struggle that we want to have. And yet we have to be aware that at some point you also have to like, you know, make that decision of what am I standing for, even if it's going to evolve and change, right? It it, it can be a struggle.
0: It's a funny thing. There's a, there's a funny, I guess, paradox. I'll say at least in, so my reflective practice, I would say principally is still doing podcasts. So I have this one that we're playing mm-hmm. here. I have another one that I do with a colleague. And uh, we. I find myself, the, the question that kind of pops up to me is, am I, what is it? what is it that kind of engages me about this type of reflective practice, which is, I'll say on one hand is, let's say it's open source, kind of out the open. It, it's, it's collaborative. It's interactive to a degree. Um, somebody do, you, um, Jen Apgar, do you Jen? So mm-hmm. Jen, mm-hmm. I, um, mm-hmm. she kind of pushed back at one point when I talked to her, she said, you know, why do you podcast, which ended up becoming the podcast. That wasn't what we were going to talk about. Right. But she's like, you right. know what, here you go, Clough, here's a wrench. And so we ended up talking about that and it's, one of the things that i like i i don't go back and listen to my podcasts very rarely
1: oh that's interesting that's I yeah i hadn't really thought about that but i do go back and read blogs of mine and i know one of the things we wanted to touch on was kind of like my blogging gaps if you will mm-hmm. you feel me
0: do you feel <laughs> me creeping up on that i'm creeping up on that yeah yeah no
1: but you know what? It's it's You've done it very naturally, so it's good. <laughs> and we did it transparent. Um,
0: there we go. Yeah, oh, we're being very honest. Um,
1: no, but it's interesting because if, you know, I don't mean I go back and read my blogs in a like, hey, uh, you know, glass of wine, I'm going to relax tonight, read my own blogs. Um, but there are times that I am wanting to see where I was at a certain point, or I know I've written about something and I want to share those thoughts with someone else. So rather than... Ha- necessarily re, restating all of that. I can say, listen, I wrote about this. Maybe it'll help you on your journey. So, um, so it's interesting you talk about not listening to your own podcast? Because it's one of those questions you hear in the arts world, right? Do you watch your own movies? Do you listen to your own albums? That kind of stuff, right? Um, But I think for me, the writing process is part of that reflection. But as you noted, when we were talking earlier, I have had some big gaps in my blogging. And I've spoken about that in my blogging. I've written about like, you know, I've, I've been away from it and here's why. And so I always... I've come to a few realizations about why that is. Um, one of the reasons for me is that I've been given lots of opp- other opportunities for writing. And I do find writing very reflective, uh cathartic even. Um, but um, so I write for... Um, the Ontario School Library Association's Teaching Librarian, which other people can submit to. It's not like it's in an, you know, I'm appointed forever. Um, Anybody can submit to if they have experiences in the school library world. I write for OpenShelf and I'm part of that team, and that's the Ontario Library Association's online magazine. And I've written some stuff for the Canadian School Library Association's website, And some articles there. So, I think I've been able to fill that part of myself in other ways, not necessarily needing to blog on my own blog. Um, And then I have struggled a little bit with what is my motivation for blogging. And... I'm okay with I like to write and it's relaxing for me. But then I could also just keep a journal, which I epically fail at every time I've tried one. Since I was eight years old, I every January would get a new journal. As part of my New Year's resolution, I was going to write. And then, you know, you'd I'd write a few times and then I'd give up and then go back to it. So if I just wanted it for the experience of writing, I think there's other tools. So then I really struggle with... I don't know if struggle is the right word. I reflect a lot on should I do something just because I can? And, you know, I'm very much at a point where if it's just for myself, that's okay. But ultimately, if I'm putting something out for some kind of public recognition, I have to be serving someone else as well. Ideally, my students at all times, but also my colleagues, my family, whoever. And so I struggle a little bit whenever I post a blog with um, am I looking for an echo chamber? Do I want to be told how great I am? Uh, Is it about my own ego? Am I feeling some sense of competition that I've made up in my head with the bloggers that I follow and I admire? Um, And so is It creates a little bit of self-doubt and that's not self-doubt in my writing ability. I feel pretty confident as a writer, but what am I trying to get out of it? And what am I trying to give by producing it? And it's funny that you brought this up too, because just, I just finished another AQ course, uh, taking one, not teaching one in July, which, you know, became a whole funny joke with my friends. They're like, why are you taking that? And I'm like, because I want to, and I like to finish things. And that was a whole different conversation. But, um, cause 20 years in, they're kind of like, do you really need that? I'm like, I want it. So that's why I'm doing it. And as I was finishing that, you do a lot of writing cause it was all online. Right. And so I thought to myself, oh, I think I need to reactivate my blog a little bit. I think I need to go to it. And I look at some of my friends who like blog, it's every Monday, no matter what, or, you know, blog every couple of days, no matter what. And I, admire that but and it's not to devalue anything that they're saying because I love everything I read from them but I feel very strongly I have to have something really important to say if I'm going to publish it and put it out there on social media which I'm very active on and that is a parameter that I've put on myself and so sometimes uh I think I hesitate and think, well, I don't have anything deep and meaningful to say today, so I'm not going to produce anything. And then when I get worked up about something positively or negatively, then I feel the need to put it out there. And one of the things that I know that we alluded to in our conversation before we started today was about transparency. And one of the struggles I have is I am truly an open book. And I also, though, respect that if I put something in writing on a blog or an article and it's not, it's, and part of it is not my story to tell, or if it may cause harm to others, then I shouldn't be sharing it. And so sometimes I've hesitated too. you know, one of the gaps I think in my writing too was, um, you know, I was supporting a family member who was, who was going through cancer treatment for, you know, almost two full years. And sometimes I would want to write about how I was feeling, but it would have meant revealing their story, which isn't, fair. So I would rather not write something on my blog than to risk causing harm, but also to be inauthentic. I don't want to be some cute version of myself that makes the world think everything is okay when things were not okay for myself or that family member during that period. So it's complicated. Like it's a very long answer to why was there a little mm-hmm. gap in my, <laughs> in my writing. But I really do think about it a lot. And, um, and, I, and and I do really sometimes question, why am I doing this? Who is this for? Who is it serving? And, you know, if it is really just the same as getting lots of, you know, hearts on an Instagram post, then I don't want to do it. So I have to check my own intention quite a bit. It's
0: funny, eh? Like, I think to myself... First, I'm uh, this dude Royan Lee, he's a, he's a colleague of mine. And in talking to him, he had said that his sort of part of his path in discovering not only let's say social media, but discovering the version of himself that he wanted to have on social media, which he's 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 harmonized very well. If you follow any of his feeds, um, what he's kind of doing in real life and what he's doing uh, digitally, it's it's seamless and he, he said he, he, he sort of shifted into for him it was being not only self-aware but also aware that the to make little assumptions about the audience that are that sort of receiving um, it's, a, it's a powerful reminder to me because I think that I I hear what you're saying about the asking yourself why why am I putting this thing out into the world? I was just this morning chatting with someone who said that they felt like currently, currently, well, they so said the edgy Twitter right now that there's a, it's either, um, I forget how the person, I don't want to misquote them, but it, my response to their sort of observations of the the, the waters right now <laughs> in edgy Twitter, my response to was that I've come to believe that there is no silo out there, that I am I am the silo. And that I decide, I'm deliberate, and I decide who I interact with and what I share yeah. with. So it's it's when I said before that I don't go back, I don't re-listen to what I you know what I tend to do with my podcast. It's funny, what I what I do with them is I'll go back and I'll look at the names and I'll kind of look at I look at what it is because I remember all the conversations. Like I do, not not word not word of for course, word. Of course. But-
1: with the content you got yeah. it. and
0: the people, and sort of the why. And I, what I tend to look at is I look at how did I, what did I do to project this? So that when I think of the social media, the piece that I'm putting out there, what did I do to project the essence of this con, con, uh, conversation? If because right. with the actual podcast, this one in particular, because it's packaged and then I send it out afterwards, no one's listening in right now in real time. Um, so that becomes a, I, I shape it according to my will. So there in the beginning, you know, like, it's funny, your the time frame in my podcast when I first met you is that I was doing a sketch note, like that picture that I sent you for every single guest. And so... That was just my way to encapsulate my learning by putting the idea on paper in front of me. I was able to say, okay, now it exists in the real world. What do I think about it? And then I would mail it out. So, side note, I'll, I'm going to send this out to you. You're going to get, you'll, I'll send you the, the paper copy and you'll get, you can have it. I don't do that anymore. I've actually, um, I'm still trying to, I just got a new batch of like a send out little chasing squirrel stickers, like I have the, the squirrel. But um, I look at what I put into basically the blog role, and I looked at how that's changed. And what I do is I actually become less reflective about the conversation, more reflective about how did my – why did my process change? What was, what was right. kind of like getting in there? Um, and much like you're saying, like the life, like how is life running parallel to my creative expression? Mm-hmm. It's funny – the second layer to this, though, and it goes back to Jen asking to the the why. I would okay. say that there's a very strong component of me asking myself, and this is after the fact. I didn't think I wasn't asking myself this going into this process, but after the fact, is right. would I be as engaged in discussions about education yep. if I was if my only outlet was the school proper? Right, And I've come back to kind of believing as I don't think I would, because I'm trying to think of my behavior as I'm sort of in conversations. And again, that process of, of working through this long game of reflective practice with this podcast, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm as fluent in doing that or capable or confident in doing it in real life.
1: In the, in the school setting, in the school setting per se. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and it's not that it's not, I just, no. when I, ref, if I'm, if I'm kind of looking back on process and I'm not backing out of my comment about not listening to my podcast, right. but what it is, what I'm listening for and looking for is something different than the conversation as I had it the first time. Right. And listening to it end to end. I don't know if that would be, cause the person's not there. The person's not there anymore. No. Right. They're there. It's, it's, but it's an echo of their voice, but they're not there anymore. Right. Like even being able to hash this out with you now feels more poignant than for me to then go and write a blog post about. Right. Why I feel I like podcasting better. And, it's a weird little mind game. And as you were
1: talking about it, I was thinking a lot about, you know, um, the podcast concept versus blogging. And I don't know that it's necessarily the tool. I think it's partially what you're doing with it. You could have a podcast where you just talked. And that is in essence, the same as a blog. If I choose not to interview someone or have someone engage with it, the, the reason that, that there's a shift is because you are choosing to engage in conversations. But so is it, you know, I could do that through a blog. We could, I could easily be, you know, messaging back and forth with someone. I don't think it's as effective as podcasting, but so is it, is it the essence of the, The fact that you're having conversations that you can, you know, reflect on as you're having them and even if you're not going to listen to the whole thing in the future, you can reflect on them in the future and say, oh yeah, that conversation at that time I felt this way about it. Now I'm hearing that or receiving that differently. I think, I think one of the big differences in something like just blogging your thoughts and feelings is it's completely yourself, and you could use the podcast in that way, just you talking and then putting it out in the universe. Um, but maybe the engagement piece long term is that you are having different conversations all the time.
0: Yeah, I, it was um, someone recently said, I don't know how the person answered your question. I'm like, what are you talking about? They were giving me some feedback, yeah. which was, it was cool. I, I don't get I don't get as much feedback as I would like. Right i sorry. I don't get as much secondary feedback as right. I would like. Right. There's a whole lot of the primary feedback happening right now, which to me is imp- more important. Right. To, right. Like I get a sense of whether or not you and I are good. Yeah. By whether or not you and I are good. Right. Not by right. anything that would happen afterwards. <laughs> right. But, but the person's reflection on listening to my podcast are like, I don't even know how that, so this is their words to me. I don't even know how that dude was able to answer that question, but they did. Right. And it's, that's a funny thing, right? Because you're listening to the room, but you're not in the room. Right. So I said to them, I'm like, I said to my colleague, I said, I think I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, and part of, it, I would say is that it's, it's the person's, the other person's fault. Cause right. I think my question, I actually had a really clear kind of question I wanted to ask until yeah. I met them. Right. And that for me, I think is what like I,
1: and do you think that person who gave you that feedback was intimidated by the question? Like, if they they felt like, well, if I was asked that question, I I couldn't have answered it. Was it a personal reflection? Or yeah, was it was.
0: It, yeah, and and part yeah. of this person is saying, you know, as the question was asked, like I there, theirs was I didn't I couldn't really I couldn't really grab a hold of the question right while it was being asked. Right, but I understood. I went back and understood what you were asking when the person gave the answer. And I think it's a really, it was, I I just took it as like, that's kind of cool. That's an interesting dynamic because I I haven't considered it that way, but I'm, I really do, as I've thought about it afterwards, that little bit of pushback makes me realize that the question, and I told you this, you know, our on-ramp the question you asked, like, are we going to follow the map? Right. And I'm like, until we don't. And, and that is the impact of meeting someone in this space. And I think that's, what's maybe absent to me in doing any other work other yeah. than the technical end when I leave the podcast. And right. it's so. And I
1: was very quick though, to say, I'm very, I'm very comfortable with that. Like I'm mm-hmm. okay. But you, have you encountered people who are like, no, I need you to stick to the map?
0: Um, n- no, it was, it was funny because when I, when I started doing this and maybe you were kind of similar with your your, your blogging process is I, I set out a template that I thought I should follow. Like, here's kind of what I should be addressing, what I should be doing. Here's the question. I still have, I, I shared the list when, you know, me presenting to the students um, at my school, sort of like, here's how I do. Here's my, my process. Um, take it, I mean, you know, good luck, take it. You can steal whatever you want from it. But I gave to the students the resource of my, my question list that I created in Google Docs way back in the day. And I even put like, I put the questions and then sidebar icebreakers. Right. Um, analysis. Right. Uh, ex- like I kind of categorize them Categorizing.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And
0: in doing so, you know, one of the things I know in l- listening, in having conversations with individuals that I spoke to afterwards and sort of listening to parts of my early conversations is that it was very lockstep. You could You right. could hear it in the flow. Right. And I think that's – That in itself is the sweet spot in, let's say, blog writing if you're doing it for yourself because you are – it's entirely you in the car. Yes. And the only limitation is the functionality of the car. That's really what it is, the tools that you have at hand to get to your destination. Um, For me, I'm okay with someone sort of noticing that it's hard to answer my questions, mostly because I don't – I'm not entirely crystallizing what that means, as in I'm not taking a negative, positive – I think it's just an observation – and I'll kind of blow it up that maybe sometimes that's what happens in conversation is that questions are hard to answer. It could be for a lot of different reasons. The willingness to take a chance is always such a gift to me, like someone just willing to kind of flow with it. Mm-hmm.
1: And that is the intimidating aspect of, of being a guest, if you will, on a podcast. Like this is the second one that I've done. And the first one I did, though, we were physically in person. We were in the same room so, and they were two people that I knew very well, so, like, it, the, I still was cognizant of the recording, and I was aware, but because I'm such a talker, once I get going, it's easy for me to kind of forget, but I think that is the intimidation factor, and to me, it sounds like what that person is saying is, if I was asked that question on the fly, I couldn't have pulled the answer out of my hat that quickly, and I might have needed to take a beat, and, so would they have had the self-advocacy skills to say, I'm going to have to take a beat. Can we stop recording or can I take a breather or can I, you know, jot my thoughts down? And, you know, it's, I think that can be the intimidator about podcasting when you're the invited guest. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's that, that idea of having to be on, on top of things, which is a totally different beast if you were doing live radio, right? That would be even more so, um, but for me, even presenting at conferences and that kind of stuff, like I am very comfortable with that kind of interaction. And, you know, if things don't go the way we planned or if questions go a different direction. So but I can see where not everybody would come with that confidence or that comfort.
0: I also take it. All of that I agree with. I also take it as Clough, you got to work in your questioning technique. <laughs> like I actually, yeah. there, was, there was an element yeah. of this. This is an yep. individual that is a like they are. They're they're an amazing uh, English teacher. Like so, their their space of commentary was also hitting me in a technical space. So I I fully appreciate that too, and you, you got to take that in. Like that that was great. Clef, cool, okay, I, I get it. You know, there was something in the room. There was a vibe. You two are simpatico. You're flying, but technically here's how you, you know, that, that question was still right. kind of like ham handed. So part of me going forward and I, d- it's, um, like, I loved being called on that. I love yeah. it. Cause I been I've been I, you called on is
1: some of what you tapped into, which is there's asking the questions for the person who's in the conversation with you and yeah. then there's framing them for your audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the structure of it is tricky.
1: That's a tricky balance, right? Because in the moment the flow feels natural and the person, if they get the question, that's okay. But does it need reframed for those that are not in the room that are listening two months later? Okay, so whatever.
0: here's the record question then. What percentage so of the of the published pieces that you've had so far? Yeah. What percentage? And I won't say I won't include speaking in engagement no, no, where no, you no, have the no, human let's no. say you those have yeah, yeah so the published pieces contact. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, the yeah. published pieces you put out so far, what percentage were entirely for you?
1: Um, probably not many. Uh, truthfully, like probably not many. I, I think. Um,
0: and not that they have to be, but again, no, just play, no, playing with the playing with I the really, numbers there. My
1: argument is that if it was entirely for me, I wouldn't need to publish it. So there has to be. I need someone else to hear this. So whether I need them to hear it to validate myself, whether I need them to hear it so they know they're not alone. Like for me, when I go back, if I, and I skimmed through my blog a bit in preparation for today. Um, homework.
0: I, you did homework.
1: I did homework. I'm a homework girl. That's like awesome. I don't believe in homework. We can I have that conversation totally if you want. this
0: classroom, yo. Self-directed
1: awesome. homework that I choose to do is very different than a worksheet package that I'm handed. Um, but I... For me, and again, it's hard to know, for me, the most effective blogs I've written are the ones where I document my journey as a parent, as well as my beliefs as an educator. So, I wrote one about perseverance, about one of my children whose reading journey was atypical, if there is such a typical thing as typical. And I know, I mean, I had comments, but take that away, I know that I impacted parents and educators, not in a broad stream, I mean, I'm talking, you know, the five people that talked to me about it or reached out or whatever, and maybe hopefully have shared it with other people. The idea that even a two-teacher household can sit at home and worry your kid isn't going to learn to decode, right? And so that is for me because I needed to share that journey because it still brings emotion to this day as she's heading to high school and doing really well, um, that is for me in the sense of I needed to get that story out because it was a journey our family has you know walked through and we've shared other things on there too but also I do believe if one person reads that and goes okay I know my little one hasn't cross the threshold of whatever the curriculum says they're supposed to have at whatever age, but they still, there's still hope and there's still supports and other people go through this, then I still think there is some service to that, right? But in the end, the either mirroring or, you know, response back is the ultimate payoff when when you publish something, you know, to the the social media, in this case, Twitterverse or whatever, getting that feedback, even if it's just from my own mom saying, "Gosh, that Jen, that was great. I loved it." I'm still, I'm still benefiting. So it's, 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 it's not just for me the actual writing. I still think I have something important to share, but I, it still is for me. I still struggle with. In the end, I'm still happy to hear that even if it has served someone and it's had that deeper impact that they know they're not alone and all of those things that I do believe we can have in social media and in blogging and all of that, there still is the underlying of, I like to be told that I'm good at something. And it's just, that's the transparency piece of it. Right.
0: I get it. I get it. It's, it's, we, we talked to, I think it was in the honor ramp See, this is where it, where it starts to get murky. Right. I don't remember if we said it in the on-ramp or if it's happened. So I think this an on-ramp where we're talking about that idea yeah. of, um, uh, you know, putting, putting pieces out there, whether, you know, whether you're, you're writing or the podcast and then mm-hmm. people kind of finding them. So it's not, mm-hmm. and then maybe <laughs> them using it in their, um, yep. their professional learning, or maybe they're yep. reiterating what you're doing so they could be republishing or whatever. And it's, there's a funny little bit of, for me with a podcast that if someone were to sort of say, Hey, I listened to the podcast. I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. I kind of put yeah, up, I, 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 yeah. I did that. It's weird. Like there's a, there's an element for me where I actually have a, I have a physical, um, physiologically, I feel like I'm like a kettle. I guess that's the best way to put it. So I feel like I have to push something out and it's like, um, that idea of me actually writing like directed pieces. I think the only time I have a sense that I'm doing a directed piece, like where I'm really, I feel like someone should hear something. And I'll come back to this is when I get in the room with you right now and ask you questions. And my only need is for you to be able to talk with me. And it's funny. I think of all the other pieces i put out. And for me, I like, like my, blog, the one that I have is a mixture of like, I have the feed for this podcast. It's there, but principally that blog, like I, I was doing more EDU type posts and commentary, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but I've swung mm -hmm. so much more towards creative pieces. And I think I know for people, if I were, if I were considering my audience, I would keep, I would keep space between there so that I'm easier to consume. Right. It's funny. I've, I've started to narrow, narrow the actual tools that I use to express myself. I think because I feel like I'm more clear in, in how I express myself yet the product coming out would be less clear because it's not, it's not always about the same thing. So right now, like I'm on a I um, I. It's. I was just actually saying to my spouse, Karen, I'm like, you know, I haven't written any. So my, my thing is I'll, I'll write poetry. I'll do poetry. So my, right. my yep. thing is I haven't done any in July, none, not a single creative piece. Part of that I will say is I've been, I've been living it. Like I've really enjoyed July. So, but it makes me think about, you know, so what we're, so there's something about, times in my, my life that are just feeding into this kind of explosion point that I need to express a thing. And I have to be honest, I'm not, when I'm sort of putting those pieces down, I'm not really thinking about whether or not the audience, any particular audience right. or the audience no. gets it. And it's kind of a weird, it's a weird uh, dissonance in my brain. Cause part of me is like, you got things Clough. You could like, you should talk to people like you should share these things kind of direct it kind of help 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 poke the beast a little bit kind of move it um i don't i don't my brain doesn't always
1: no it doesn't
0: i i don't believe i don't i don't believe as soon as that thing is said in my head i kind of go yeah right
1: yeah so is that what we're talking about are we reeking of privilege Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, now absolutely Right, So the idea that I can choose to write and I like the accolades um, and that, you know, you can express creatively, but when you don't need it for the month of July, that's okay. And then I just, I'm thinking about all the authors I follow and all the like, and that, you know, and I see sometimes they're, you know, like I, I did it. I wrote a thousand words today and today, and that if they are dedicated to their craft and it is their livelihood they don't have that privilege of saying, I don't need that for I'm this gonna month. i time off. Yeah. You know, I have that privilege, right? And I have that to, you know, and and if you needed a podcast break, you know, you can say like, yeah, I don't need that for a bit. But if this was your, and I feel like I'm leading us into this conversation that I didn't mean to, this edu, this edu celebrity debate that's out there. But what I'm saying is if that is your, main financial source and also your main uh, creative outlet. Because obviously what that's telling it is that you and I both have other ways that we experience self-expression and joy. And, you know, as we were, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, when I started that blog, I didn't have a public platform other than my social and mm-hmm. media accounts. I wasn't being invited to speak, I, you know, like it's only this year I was asked to be a keynote for the first time. I don't say only like that's been my life goal, but I just mean like in the two, two, you know, the few years since I started blogging, I have other platforms for my voice, including the ones I mentioned at the beginning, right? OLA and OSLA and all that. So there is an element of privilege of choice that we have. That if that was your main financial production, or if it was what was going to get you guaranteed access to something else that you needed or wanted, you'd have to be producing content with your audience in mind differently than I just didn't need it for the past mm-hmm. little while. Right? No,
0: totally agreed. And I think this is where, um, this is where what becomes kind of murky here is, are, am I, is, <laughs> what has primacy? My, Mm -hmm. me just my whole me or the fact that I'm a teacher and I think I've Mm -hmm. where I kind of exist is I try to exist more as the whole me if if I were I think if I were if edu if I was if I was taking my life in order to speak to edu it would be different than what I'm creating right now I think What I'm doing is I'm taking EDU as just one of the pieces in, in my sort of world. Um, But I can see where, because when I go into the, you know, what I perceive to be the the political side of teaching, the social justice side of, of, sorry, the social justice side of, of creating something, the social justice side of, of teaching that part. um, It, 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 my life experience is, there is privilege within that, that doesn't ignite mm-hmm. the sort of like the constancy or consistency of having to sort of like push against the issue. Like I can, I can.
1: Right. You're not forced to do that. You can choose when you want to be passionate about something absolutely. and when you don't. And and, I, so and I, 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 right? what I do is I conflate
0: right? the political and the creative. So and by having those two spaces, I, I get it. I totally agree with with your observation there. Um, mm-hmm.
1: um I know that you were reading um Alicia mm-hmm, Elliott's mm-hmm. book. Um I am not quite finished, but I was I'm immersed in the chapter about being identified as as an as a native mm-hmm. author. And The idea that the Canadian, you know, literary circles demand that you are always addressing issues that may affect Indigenous peoples and that you just want to be seen as a writer. And I think there's a quote from Thomas King around that. I might be misquoting that. But anyhow, so it, it reminds me of that conversation, right? The privilege to step away from having to make a statement about something and then not having that privilege, right? The expectation that, well, that's part of you, so everything you do must be this. And I do think that teacher hat is an aspect. Um, You know, I hear, I'll hear sometimes, well, they're a teacher. I can't believe that they, whatever, right? Well, they're a teacher in their work day. And yet I am a believer, although I don't believe in the total moral, you know, like teachers have this moral calling and then can't be human. I'm not, I'm not going to buy into that, but I do feel like I have to be 24 hours a day. I have to be who I am at school at home. And it, and I don't mean like it's a negative. I mean like I want to present a transparent, authentic Mrs. Brown, although I hate that the kids have to call me that. I wish they could call me name. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but I have to be the same person at school that I am at home. And not in a like at home I have to behave differently um, to a negative, but meaning that I want my students to, to see an authentic version of myself. Are there systemic structures and things that are in place like them having to call me Mrs. Brown instead of hey Jen sure but but I I am very I do get concerned when I know that educators consciously are like oh no I behave this way at school and I behave differently at home but my bigger concern is those educators who are not permitted to be their true selves in school so you know like it a lot of times still with the LGBTQ plus community and, and that like the idea that I have friends and colleagues who can't talk about their family the way I talk about my family is, is heartbreaking to me and I don't know how they do it. And so I'm a, big believer in transparency and I mess up all the time and I talk about messing up all the time with the kids and that, but I also have the privilege of being able to be transparent. There's nothing of my identity that I am obligated to hide based on systemic structures. And so I do have some, it's easy for me to get on a platform of everybody should be authentic and be themselves, but then our system doesn't always accept that from all of our educators, right? So it, that, that can be a bit of a struggle. And then when you get into blogging and all of that and social media, it's all curated. We're not, you know, we're all aware it's curated, but am I curating the authentic self that I aspire to be? And I think that's important. Great reflective right?
0: question. Curated and connected, I would say. So that's, it, it ends up yeah. um, exponentially changing how we experience each other. I don't know if, you know, you know totally. I'm, I'm having memories of, Um, OCT trainings reminding us repeatedly about, you know, you're 24-7 a teacher and the enforcement of that moral code, even when you're not in the classroom and the extension of the school, school persona into the community and the implications of that. And I think about how that's been, kind of turned on its head a bit with social media growth because what we're confronted with is that we aren't and even in some cases we do not want to be identified as a teacher first there's so much more to me you know you know use intersectionality like there's like and and not only that sorry you don't get to tell me who I am right now <laughs> so, right, I,
1: right. I, 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 and yet we all hear those horrible, scary stories that somebody's at the Blue Jay game and they overdo it, and somebody hears behind that they're a teacher, and the next thing there's a, a complaint to the OCT. I don't even know if those are true, but we all have those built into our like, into our psyche as teachers. And I do, so I try and flip it. I try and flip it the way I was describing, which is can I bring who I am at home to school? Versus, do, am I obligated to bring who I am at school to home? And 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 it doesn't clear up the muddiness of all of this, but it 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 helps me to see you know that I can still I can bring who I authentically am. And one of the compliments I remember getting from an educator who I'm going to say our minds don't always meet, but we work very hard to to come together because we really respect what the other one does, even though we do it very differently. And I remember her talking about the equity social justice conversation because, you know, ironically, here I am this, you know, like, you know, um, uh, cisgender white lady who gets invited to speak about equity and social justice, right? And then I work very hard to try and amplify others' voices, but I also don't want the conversation to stop. So she said to me, one of the things that she appreciates is that I try and actually live what I am asking of other people. So when I say, you know, as soon as I learn that language has evolved or whatever it is, and I need to adopt something new in my practice or in my daily life, I authentically try to apply it. It was a great compliment, right? Because she's not saying I'm an expert or I have anything figured out. She's saying you take what you learn and you try and apply it. better compliment, especially from an educator who you don't always see eye to eye with? It was a really good compliment. And so I think that is the challenge is the, it's not necessarily teacher hat on teacher hat off. It's what have I learned from whatever experience in or out of school that is going to influence how I interact on social media, you know, with my students, with my colleagues, with my own family. You know, I think that for me is the journey of balancing all of that.
0: We started by talking about the map and I don't know where the heck we are on the map right now. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Okay, no, I, I think are. I can do this. Okay. So um I I I wanna I wanna draw, you know, the LLC teacher librarian you into the combo. Um and you decide whether or not you're 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 answering with your home style you or your school style style you. And and it was that the the idea that that the library learning commons do you use that is that your do you call it the library do you do the full yep. acronym yep. LLC how do you how do you call it either I okay do either
1: my attitude is it's always a library it also should All be right. a learning commons we can unpack we that we just if you might want.
0: with this question so <laughs> the the question is is the one about seeing and being seen and um, it's it, it struck me. It struck me how, um, because of design wise, because of where libraries can be positioned, you know, either at Crossways or at the heart of the school, um, by resource, I'm I'm going to say this, it's that they they tend to be resource rich, even if the resource is singular. So we could say lots of books, but resource rich in, in a differentiated way as well. Um, there's the opportunity for a lot of different peeps to walk in that space, which to me then suggests that the interactivity level, there's an opportunity there as well. So with that all being my my perception of of a, of a library learning Commons, I kind of shift into then so that's how the table is set. Then what is what are your thoughts on? the library kind of being an expression of the, you know, kind of like the school consciousness, like it being, I don't, and I'm trying to, I want to stay away from sort of like, let's say a specifically cerebral reference here as in somehow it is, you could go here, but somehow it's sort of directing a school, which is a a cool way. But I think it's the noticing that I'm really curious about and and creating the opportunity to notice, it's really really big. You come at that from however you. Is,
1: I'm, you know that I I was a note taker right before we before we met, so I'm looking sort of at like looking at kind of the two. I feel like it crosses over with with like both of the initial. Ways you asked the question initially, or posted the question to me before about school consciousness, and then also the idea of what are we observing, right? Um, so let's let's it, anchor that. One of things about I the things I think is piece what,
0: that I I sent you about uh, least Elliott's the dark yeah, like, matter.
1: they were the two right. kind of separate, yeah the two kind of separate questions, but I think really okay. it's one big concept, right? So um, or it can be one big concept because one of the things um, did you want to expand on the dark matter and what that is?
0: we can i think we should honor it just a little bit so okay. i'm reading i'm reading the um the same the same book as you the yep. mind mind spread out on the ground yep. and, and i i was hung on a chunk in there where uh alicia's writing about a personal experience and also including some scientific um research about noticing dark matter in the universe so the stuff that's between the stars um and realizing that the density the density you know realizing that there's a differential between what you see and what's actually there there's a density differential so you know part of the thing is there must be something there between the sparkles right and including that research with um a story f- from from her life and I got mm-hmm. hung on this dark matter mm-hmm. she did it very well it's intentional she she hung yeah. me on this idea of dark matter and what we notice what we notice between things so that kind of, you're right, that seeing and being seen. And then, you know, your reference to the notes, just anyone that's listening to it. So there was yeah. some sending notes back and forth yeah. um, as far as what was kind of sparking me up around Topic. the conversation. Yeah. So the, the question, the question that I sent to you, and it was, it was rough. I sort of prefaced it like, how and why is a learning uh, commons, library learning commons, uniquely positioned to notice or witness stuff happening in the school? Um, And I just said that, um, you know, I kind of mentioned it here that it was, it was happening because it's, it's adjacent to my reading of her book. So to draw it back in, I feel like maybe you have some thoughts on that.
1: And becoming that school consciousness, right? I think that's where I, that's where I see the connection between the two concepts. So I think um, it's really easy to have nostalgia about a school library, but not understand what happens there. So, I have nostalgia about being a page in grade five and having to pass my Dewey Decimal test. But other than shelving the books, I'm not really sure what I did there. So, when you're the curator of a library learning commons, when you're held responsible for co-constructing that with students... It's very singular. I don't believe that it's lonely because it's the should never be lonely in there. And if it is, then we need to reflect on practice and think about what we can do, but it is singular. So you have a responsibility to, to look at how that space can serve students, um, in an ongoing and flexible manner. And so for me, before, in case you have any, like, library listeners who, start hearing what I'm going to say and say, but I can't do this, but I can't do that. One of the things I like to just point out is the privilege I have of the library learning commons that I curate. I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's new. We're only heading into our first, into our fifth year. Um, I was able to purchase every book, every piece of furniture, everything that's in there. So um, that gave me lots of financial resource and it also gave me um, influence. Um, and so um, that is a huge privilege that not every teacher librarian has, either when they inherit a space or when um, they even are creating a space sometimes. Um, I am currently a full-time teacher librarian. Um, and um, when I opened, I was 0.7. But the other part of my job was um, ESL and special education. And I had a very supportive team of colleagues who saw what I was trying to do with the space, which I'll go into a little further. Um, and they said, no, you can't ever need to be pulled in that many directions so the way I fulfilled my uh, responsibilities for the ESL and the special education part of my job was the library remained open and I offered literacy intervention um, programming for junior aged students in the library um, which also has some really positives of doing that um, and making it just part of the learning community rather than kind of a offshoot of instruction I don't deliver any planning time or prep time so, and I don't have any subject delivery that I'm 100% responsible for. Um, so, everything's collaborative. So, what that means is the Library Learning Commons, for my experience and what I believe it should be for everybody, is completely open and flexible scheduling. So, responsiveness is essential to why you even want to witness and notice learning. If you have a lot of structural barriers that prevent you from adapting the space and your schedule, then you might be less likely to look through, right? And try and make those observations. And then the other layer for me, privilege-wise, and I've alluded to this, I, again, I'm like you, I can't remember if it was before we started recording or now. I have a principal who I lovingly joke when I present is a unicorn. He's that kind of mythical principal that does exist, right? And so his supportiveness of the structures and um, the the creativity we're trying to do in the space and his financial support, um, from the school budget are incredibly important to being able to even consider talking about a library in this grandiose way, because, um, you know, if I was fighting to get $300 to buy book tape, I wouldn't be able to approach the library learning commons this way. So, and he, you know, automatically gives 10% of the school budget to the school library learning commons. um, And I don't have to advocate for that. So that's huge. So I always like to preface any big library answer I give with some of those layers, because not Everybody in our province even has a school library a lot do not have teacher librarians in place um, and in a lot of cases we have library staff who are responsible for up to six school libraries at a time so I walk in a huge path of library privilege um, I think the layers for me around some of this is, you know, we talk very lovingly and cuddly about the library learning commons being the heart and hub of the school. But actually I do think that's true. I'm not sure that's the phrasing I would continue to use. I think it's a little, um, it's a little too cuddly um, because it implies you only go there for that. You don't go there for real authentic learning, if you will. Um, but I think what's so key about it is If you have a library that is, as I've described, in my mind, completely open and flexible. We, you know, we have completely free flow book exchange kindergarten to grade eight. So I'm not booking any, everybody come sign out their books time that kids can do freely throughout the day as based on their own literacy needs. And then teachers can book time with me in for collaboration. And that can be small group, large group, that could be whatever it needs to be. That could be one kid who needs to come down and work on something with me. Um, So the, that, that, that flexibility is essential, but there was a wide that the phrase, the catchphrase in education was deprivatization of practice. Do you remember using yeah. that phrase? Yep. Uh, it, I actually believe that about the library. It is the most public teaching environment in the school. And it should be. And if it's not, then there needs to be some deeper conversations with what, whoever's running that space and why that is the case. Because as you described it, the utopia is, and what I feel like I in many ways have each day and I am lucky enough to have in the community I, I'm in, is It's constant. There's kids in doing different things. There's different learners of different ages, different learners for different content. And not only are they interacting with me and they're interacting with the space, they're interacting with each other. So to me, that is public. It's a deprivatization of the learning that is happening, not just in the library, but throughout the rest of the school. And that does give a unique opportunity to say, oh, the grade fours are looking at this. Oh, the grade eights are talking about something similar. I wonder if we can connect them. wonder if we can ask those questions together. And you can't um, plan for those. You can try. You can say, you know, all the grade fours are going to learn this subject area in March and so are the grade sevens and we're going to partner. But that's not authentic. Though The key for me is that it's those authentic moments of, oh, wait, we have another book I can grab you for that. Or have you tried this website? Or have you talked to so-and-so because he's been doing a project on this all year and he would love to talk to you about it. So it is that public aspect of it where anybody could walk in at any time and that's a really for some educators that's a scary thing. Some educators don't love teaching in the library learning commons <laughs> because they are intimidated by that. But as you get comfortable with that, it's the realization that that means every human that walks through that door is a potential resource or is a potential new question that you can work on answering together. And so if you look at that kind that concept, I think that is where that buzz phrase, deprivatization of practice can actually come to fruition in a library learning commons. But you have to be constantly observing and constantly listening and decentering yourself, which is not always easier for me because I'm a big personality. So I try very hard to decenter myself. So as much as I am the face of the library, I am not the library. The library is whoever's in it. And so um, really, truly being student-centered And we use that phrase again a lot, and we think that by giving the kids a choice of three topics, we've made it student-centered. The Library Learning Commons, to me, is truly a place where kids can access whatever materials or content they need, and it may still be because they've had an assignment that's come from whatever class they're taking, but where we go with that, I have the flexibility to respond to them or to say, we don't have that, but let's find out how we're going to do that together. So that responsiveness to students. Um, and one of the things about the school consciousness concept, I think for me, and this sounds very lofty, so I don't mean that I achieve this. I think the potential of a school library learning commons is it is the place of ideals and risk coming together. So you can take what we, what we envision an ideal learning environment should be for students and we can take the risk of trying it there without the pressures that classroom teachers often feel, right? I, I lay it out bluntly and this is not meant to sound uh, insensitive. I am not the constant adult. I'm not the one who's telling them they haven't put their snow pants on fast enough. I'm, I'm the fun aunt, Right? And it doesn't mean they're not learning and it doesn't mean there's not expectations, but I'm not their all day, every day teacher. So kids are going to access me differently, right? And I'm not in my current role, I'm not their report card writer. I give them feedback, I help assess, I help evaluate, but I am one aspect of that where all of that falls on their subject teachers, right? And it falls on them in the sense of they're the face of it. So if we talk power and privilege, whether we like it or not, teachers who are f- forced by our system to write report cards to give grades hold power over students and their families. I technically can hold that power, but in my current role, I do not. So there is an ease with me that can be different. Doesn't mean they don't love their teachers. Doesn't mean their teachers aren't amazing. But when push comes to shove, they're going to get that envelope and they got to go home to their families and say, mom, I only got see That teacher ultimately holds that power. Right. And I don't, although I influence assessments and valuation and I work collaboratively with, teach, collaboratively with teachers, it's not my name on that report card. So that's a very freeing thing for me. Right. And so the learning that can happen in that space as a result, even if it's still product driven based on what's expected of them from their classroom teachers, I can just look at things from a different lens with them and give them that opportunity. Um, And so I do, I tend to see kids, you know, one of the things I wrote down in my notes was I tend to see kids at their best, even if they're at their worst. And it's because they're in a different environment. They may be coming to that environment simply to recover from whatever moment they're having either in their classroom or at their, you know, recess break or whatever it is. And so they are not necessarily feeling the best, but I can still see them through that lens. So I think that is the dark matter, right? I think that is the, I, because I don't, in my role, I am not the keeper of all those other things that I mentioned, right? Their, their daily structures, their, evalu, their final evaluations, all of that. I can just see them in that moment and see them interact with the space that, We've created, and the materials that are available and which are varied, um, and see how they respond to that, and then I can respond to them. And so I think that the question is: when and when I choose to leave the library, how do I bring all of that to classroom instruction? That is my big question. So when I choose to go back to the classroom, which I will, um, how do I take everything I've learned? noticing and observing kids in that manner and bring it to the classroom when I will be the one holding, holding the report card, you know, power. Right. And so that for me is the big question. And in terms of influence, I think, I think the library can be just like books and we talk about it this way, you know, it could be a a mirror and a window. So I think the library can mirror the climate and culture of the school And I think it can be a window into another way of doing things. And then I think it can be that sliding door that people can walk through literally and figuratively and can shift school culture. I I do firmly believe it can shift school culture positively or negatively. And I have some colleagues who when I'm like feeling really down about myself and I feel like, you know, I haven't reached this one or two educators that I really want to, Get them to understand how the space is an extension of their classroom and, or they won't collaborate with me and I'm, you know, and I'm really in my own head. They've really given me the concept of direct collaboration versus sphere of influence. And so they've helped me to see that I don't necessarily have to book time with an educator and work with them for six weeks straight to know that the work that's happening in the library learning commons may be influencing their practice. And so as soon as I started looking that way, it's strange, some of those same educators started saying things to me like, oh, I noticed that you did this and I've been trying that in my classroom and here's what I'm seeing for my students. And these are educators who are not the ones who I hang out with or who book lots of time with me. Um, And so I think as soon as I open myself out Myself up to the idea that I'm not the center, but that the, li- the what's happening in the library, because it is deprivatized, to go back to that concept, um, can be changing climate and culture in the building without necessarily having to control classroom. It's,
0: you you got uh, one of the things that uh, popped and is still kind of bouncing around out of that is, and you you got you got close to it in your response. It was the idea of what sort of the things that are being noticed in the library with the process of sharing those noticings out to the school. So it's sort of like the ability to kind of take it in, to see it, to nourish it, play with it, honor it. And then what that looks like getting it back into the hands of the staff, you know, that are working with the students in other contexts. That was one part that kind of was shaken out of that. The second part is, and it's kind of connected to that is doing, you know, the, doing presentations, you know, outside of the school
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sort of thinking about, and I guess maybe these are the two things that create a little bit of, a di- there's some tension in my mm-hmm. mind between these two statements, is that, you know, looking at the process, you di- it's a three-stepper. You, future you, if you mm-hmm. step away from the library, mm-hmm. what's, the le- what's the legacy and portability of what you've learned? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another piece is, current learning current noticing, how is that expressed to the other individuals in the learning community that are outside mm. of the library?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: the th- third layer to it or third space is that idea of speaking about that or sort of using social media expressing mm-hmm. it so outside of the bubble that you would never necessarily see impact right but you're willing to kind of speak to it in these other spaces mm-hmm. That's a really heady kind mm-hmm. of mix. Mm -hmm. of um activation that um that just to me it's kind of it's sort of mesmerizing just to ground it let's say is have you have you played with a process that sort of says here's some stuff that i'm kind of noticing noticing in the library Mm -hmm. hey staff what do you think like and Mm -hmm. sort of being able to offer it to them like the stuff that's kind of and and and, i mean on one hand it 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 could be it's a newsletter right but, but, if we ground it a little bit more um uh, let's say a little bit more intimately, you know conversations round tables, so what's that
1: so some of it is very hallway, <laughs> some of it is very like, oh my gosh, I saw your kids in there today. I've got to tell you what they did. It was amazing, and I just get pumped up and like i i'm an, I'm a highly enthusiastic human by nature, and so some of it is. That hallway moment. And I find for those educators that are trepidatious or don't buy into what I'm selling, those are, that's actually the most effective way because it's very human. I'm not calculated about it. I don't mean to say that I'm like, Oh, I'm going to find so and so in the hallway, but I just that very human, I'm so proud of your students, or I saw something, or they asked me this question, I'm wondering if I can help, or, you know, is it something that they're doing in the classroom? Do you see the same thing? I think those are sometimes the most effective grassroots ways for uh, library staff to connect, because it doesn't, scare anyone off. It doesn't make anyone feel like, is this extra work for me? It doesn't make anyone, you know, like it doesn't create that tension. Um, I do a lot of pedagogical documentation. Again, like, you know, my love of early years and Particularly the kindergarten program document, which I think everybody should read because it's brilliant. Um, it, so I will send a lot of like pictures, videos with comments. I'll just send it to the teachers, and we're very Google based now, so it's pretty easy to just share it um, and just say, hey, this is some stuff your kids were doing in the library today. Not sure if it connects with what's happening in the classroom, you know, and here's what I heard, and here's what so and so said. And a lot of it does. Um, The in for me is often a learning skills conversation. It's often a like, listen, there was some amazing collaboration happening here today. And I wanted you to know that so-and-so took the lead or whatever that is. And I've gotten to know our students to a degree that I feel very comfortable with. Not every student, obviously there's 800 of them, but... Because of the way the library runs, and because of having been part of the support team, the the ESL and spec ed team, I know those students that may or may not be thriving in certain environments, and so um, and in certain social interactions. So I'm able to use that kind of documentation, and then a lot of it is also. Um, one of the things I recommend and I, I use is if I've, if I've had a great experience with a group of students or with an educator and their students is having those students and or that educator share the, that experience, share what worked, share what didn't work, share how the library played a role in it. Because if it's always coming from me and that could be at a staff meeting, that could be, um, just a quick email out, you know, that I send, but it's on behalf of, um, those are, For me, that's the actual voices of the space rather than me. And again, there can be some backlash when you are in a role that doesn't have a classroom responsibility. I don't get that a lot at my current school, but a lot of teacher librarians do face it. And so um, having that come from the classroom teacher says, no, this really helped when we did whatever it was through the library learning commons or this had an impact or this made me rethink. So trying to amplify those voices um, in the communication and then a lot of TLs um, use an end of year type report that they share out. I actually have shifted. I'm going to try a beginning of year um, infographic this September, where I'm going to put out some stats and data about what the library did last year to give ideas for what it can do this year. And then the other thing, I have a website for the library that I use that it's still, parts are still under construction, but um, the other thing I want to put out is like a little menu of ways that you know, staff can um, have their students engage with the space and engage with me. And I'm going to do both of those things on actual paper, um, not just virtually as kind of, you know, oversized bookmark type sizes and get them out to staff in September so that I'm communicating the overall observations and things that the library can offer in addition to those personalized, oh, I saw your students do this yesterday kind of stuff.
0: I had to take a breath. That's what it was. I was like...
1: (laughs) But that is the ongoing struggle, I I will say. But it is the ongoing struggle that, like, how do I know in the moment it's valuable. I don't want to be the person who captures everything on digital, although that has its place. I don't necessarily think every moment has to be documented as formalized assessment and evaluation. But I do need the rest of the staff to not only feel comfortable coming into the space, but to know that the space sends something back out to them. So it is an ongoing struggle. I've seen teachers have codes with Seesaw and other outside tools where like if a class is down, then they they scan that and send it right to the classroom teacher. And I, I'm not, a, I don't want to formalize those structures because those might not work for every teacher and they might not work for every Student. And so, but that's not a knock on that structure. It, if that's the way that works for the school community, I've seen lots of different ways of doing it. Um, we've gone to Google Sheets for our room booking, and there's a little feature on there where you can add a note. And so I, it, I, it can be the teacher who adds that note to say, hey, we're coming down to work on this. But it also can be me adding a note to say, we got, we worked on this, and next step we'll do this. That's not a place where I'm going to write you know, about a student specifically because it's public to the entire staff. Um, but it is a place where I might write, you know, 4A did this amazing work with Sphero today. It's something we've never thought of doing. So I'm documenting that both for myself, but then if I if someone else wanted to find out what 4A was doing when they came to visit, they could see it. So there's it's multi-layered and I don't feel like there's one single tool. I think it really depends on the kid and the... Um, and the and the classroom teacher.
0: So the I'm going to kind of draw you up to kind of like pack you up to this this past I can't believe I'm saying this this past July, and okay. you had a, a summer reading program. Okay. So the summer reading program was that was that data decided or was it did it come from another space what what. what became walk walk me through the sort of like the inspiration through iteration kind of a thing
1: so it's always something I've kind of dreamed of I have done some reading and I can't give you an exact quote from anybody um articles in the States about, often in the States, not always, but the school library is run by a librarian who is separate from the teaching staff. Um, And there was some data around, you know, I I don't know if I believe in the summer slide, but you know, there's always lots of articles about it, right? And uh, because I kind of believe play, an inquiry for two months is good for kids. But but there is some conversation about children who, from an equity perspective, do not have access to books and other learning materials in their home environment and um, what some U.S. schools were finding if they were able to have their library open throughout the summer. So very different model than here in Canada and definitely different than here in Ontario. So that I have always read about. It's also always bothered me that depending on what system you're in, I am not what, you know, I don't know if you know the picture book, The Library Dragon, Um, but I am not a library dragon um, and neither is the character in the book in the end. But we joke about that, that I really, you know, the message that I try to convey all the time to the children, to the staff, to the parents, and to anyone I speak to is that children are much more valuable than books. So, we don't charge fees. We don't have fines. Um, if your books are lost, we mark them lost and you get new books. And guess what? Almost all the books get found under the bed and back within a couple of months. So we that, that concept is really contradictory to, and because we're in Ontario in the elementary system, you know, the library supports EQAO writing in um, end of May, beginning of June. So the library's closed, which is, you know, always slightly heartbreaking. Um, but we're supporting students who need us. So that's important, um, given that EQAO still exists. And um, so essentially, we would close for that kind of the May 2-4 weekend on to the beginning of June. And then based on our system, our computer system, all the books were typically due back somewhere around June 7th to 14th. So then you have, you know, two to three weeks of school left where children are not allowed books. And how gross is that? Like, it, 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 in a logical way, it just feels awful. And then I would become this library dragon that I didn't want to be. Where are your books? Oh, you still have books out, you know. And I've never been a teacher librarian who gives prizes for the first class who gets all their books in. And, like, none of that was me. But I was there was an element of my practice that wasn't aligning with what I preach. And so, and the argument for free flow book exchange is that some children need two new books every day or three new books every day or five new books every day. And some children don't need to come for two weeks because they either have access to other materials or that's how long it takes them to read the text they have, or they're already reading, you know, 300 page novels. And they don't need the library every day five, just because that's what the teacher worked for their schedule. So, if you put all of that together, it didn't make sense to have the books sitting on the shelf all summer. And it didn't make sense for me to force kids to return books three weeks before the school year ended. So my principal and I have been talking about it really since we opened, but hadn't really decided what the logistics would look like. And then really this year, I just said, well, can we not just do a permit? And he's like, yeah, we could do that. And I said, or at minimum, can we let kids take books home over the summer, even if we can't open? And so um, again, he's a unicorn, so he's magical and mythical and makes everything happen. And so we we looked at that concept of, Why wouldn't we keep books in the hands of kids? And the other layer is we're in a new community. I mean, it's been, you know, 10 to 15 years, but still building, going up with a beautiful public library and recreation facility that is not within walking distance of my particular school. So unless the families that are at home caregiving during the summer can drive or choose to drive, the children would not be accessing the public library. We have lots of families who do, but it's another strain on the family that it has to be a drive because it's not walkable for their children. Um, and so what what my principal and I came up with was um, that... Five, the first five Tuesdays, and so happened to be the first five Tuesdays in July, that we would open the library one morning, um, just in the morning, just from 10 to 12, and our students could come sign out books. And the expectation was they would come with a parent or caregiver. Now, of course, I have some older students who care for their siblings, so they are the caregiver, so of course they were welcome. Um, And even if they weren't able to come to that, that there was no official, all the books had to be back at the end of June. And so when we announced it, we announced it a little later than we had hoped just because we were working on some of the logistics. When we announced it, there was in some classrooms like an audible reaction, like, like uh, oh, oh, like some children, for some children, the idea that they could keep their books all summer and that they could come get, visit the library was, a, they had a physical and verbal response to that. And so we clearly were hitting something, right? We clearly were, you know, teachers are calling, my class is cheering. And I was like, okay, that's amazing. And so it was an experiment, right? And at the same time, the Canadian School Libraries um, organization, they had had an article published by the author, Eric Walters, in um, their recent journal. And he had challenged libraries, school libraries, to figure out how to help kids have access to books over the summer. And he was offering, um, you know, some signed bookmarks and different stuff that he could offer from his platform. Um, And his encouragement was things like, um, you know, set it so that kids can take 10 books and keep them over the summer. So, some schools had all over the province have signed up for this. Um, I believe well over 200, if I remember. So, we were already in the planning phases of this, but he did that as well. So, we signed up for that. So, now that data, we're going to be sharing with Canadian school libraries, and they have a really interesting think tank and research symposium that happens every two years, which happens to be happening, um, in 2020, here in Toronto, so some people will be writing articles and and papers around that work. So it has all these layers of like, I just want to do the right thing for my students, but also we can track that data and have conversations around it. So um, yeah, it was a, it was a big experiment, and we had um, because we tracked student. Uh, Visits. We had 103 students access the library with their families. So that didn't include parents, grandparents, siblings, whoever, and take books home. And we had some families who came every week and spent the full two hours and hung out. And for me, like, the greatest part was watching parents sitting reading with their kids, right? And just not that we don't do that at home as parents, of course we do, but sometimes we notice the laundry and we notice the dishes and we notice, you know, so it was really nice to see that. And we had families who um, in one family, uh, grandparents were visiting uh from another country and they were only here for the summer. So because the library was open, they got to step foot in their child's in their grandchild's school and visit, you know, and we had just this past Tuesday, we had two, um, new families who have had registered in June but have now officially moved in the neighborhood so they got to come in and visit and see the space so um, we had some staff who came by my own children came and volunteered I had an interesting dialogue with one of the moms um, she was super appreciative and this is where this gets complicated right she was super appreciative loved it and she's like how are you funding this and I said well I'm volunteering my time and she was lovely and appreciative, but she assumed there'd been a government grant or some funding for us to have the space open. So that was an interesting layer of, you know, here I am promoting this as a great idea, but ultimately we're then asking educators to volunteer their time, which has its own complicated layers, right?
0: I think think part of that, it's an unfortunate little fidget spinner in the moment, Mm -hmm. right? Because I, it's funny. I uh, yesterday, my son, we had a bunch of running around we had to do. And as he walked through the kitchen, he gave, gave it a spin and it's, it's sitting on the sort of like our kind of our kitchen table with, and it's, 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 it just keeps going. I walked out of the room. Yeah. I came back in. I'm like, I noticed it right away. Yep. I went to the bathroom. I came back. I'm like, my God, that thing is still spinning. And it didn't yep. look like it was slowing down. And sometimes those that particular conversation Mm -hmm. has just been, it it is, it's part distract. It's part distraction. It's part reality, but there's also, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, when I mentioned the whole idea of we're having to sort of re-examine the teacher all the time conversation, because we were trained to be a teacher all the time, this kind of falls into that space because if the conversation around funding, if the only if our only access to new programming is through the conversation of how we're going to fund it. Right. It's a, it, it's a very short conversation. Exactly. It is. And I, and, and I don't, I'm not pressing any sort of blame buttons, but it no. isn't surprising that that convo would come up. No. I would, I would be surprised. I don't know. Maybe am I surprised? So it only came up once.
1: Yeah, one mum, and I was okay. appreciative that she asked it though. Like, was, me, it a mom,
0: was it a mum in the know, or was just I just it just came up as a conversation? As just in, came it, up.
1: She okay. just came up. She was just she was so grateful, and she was talking about how her child has been talking all about it, and and just said, and just it was just her next question. You know, how is this being funded? And and then you know, and. I don't know that she was completely surprised by the answer. I do think she was a bit disappointed. I like she, and then of course it puts her in that weird position of having to thank me. And that wasn't really I know. like my, like, like, but here's the thing. I had a great conversation with our vice principal. She was in some of the mornings and, and she was saying that she was sharing what I was doing with um, some of her other administrative colleagues. They wrote and they were all very impressed. And, and I said to her, I said, it's really no big deal. I'm like, it makes sense. Why wouldn't we keep books in the hands of children? Like it really, at its simplest form, why would the books be on the shelves all summer? It makes no sense. But then what she was able to reframe it as, and not in a like, you know, just complimentary way, but she's like, but it is a big deal. It's a big deal that, you know, you see that, you acknowledge that, that that's that's ridiculous to have a resource unused by students. But also that then you took an action to put yourself in a position to change that. And I and I kept going, no, it's not a big deal because I really this isn't this isn't like one of my blogs where I want attention, right? <laughs> this is truly this is truly what are we doing? And I'm home all summer. I have the privilege of being home with my family. My husband's also home cuz he's a teacher. You know, we it's not a big deal for me. But and it seems so simple why wouldn't the children have access to the books? But I also get what she's saying, which is lots of us see simple problems in our system, and we don't choose to try uh, anything to change it, either because we think it's too big, like I can't change the entire library world, so why would I bother, or... We just don't want to put ourselves out there. So I see it from both angles. I see it from my perspective, which is obviously the kids get the books. It's so simple. Kids need books, and then I also see it from. But you still had to do the legwork. My principal still had to investigate how to do the permit. You know, he and or my vice principal were there every week. Um, you know, I I still had to make sure I was there. The custodian made arrangements to make sure the air conditioning was running so that it was a more comfortable space for the the students and their families to come to like a lot of people still put effort in but in its essence thinking that children shouldn't have access to the books in their school library throughout the summer is a funny concept it's it doesn't make sense and the one of our phys ed team teachers came with their family and on the last Tuesday says you know what we should open the gym also next year and I was like that's a great idea so there's that sphere of influence right there's that like That educator is an amazing educator, saw something happening in the library that isn't really related to their practice, and now is considering changing their practice for next summer, which is huge, right? That's a huge achievement of the library learning commons to have influenced someone's decision-making.
0: I dig it. It's the fidget spinner. (laughs) there you go the car it's just you're gonna keep walking in and out of the room now and it's just like is that thing still spinning all right and then every once in a while like i did as it was sort of slowing down like i'm gonna give that damn thing another spin and i was (laughs) right
1: we're gonna yeah we're gonna see what happens yeah yeah. And sometimes it, you have to change the direction too. Right. And I think, I think that's part of it too. But yeah, it's been a really positive experience. I don't see not doing it. I understand there are barriers to everybody's lives and not everybody would be able to, again, we go to privilege. I have the privilege that I was able to make this suggestion and follow it through, um, you know, but it has no downside from my experience this year the only downside that we had talked about was what do i do if 500 of the 800 kids show up at the same time and my principal again being who he is says well we'll solve that when and if it happens and it didn't and that's the reality it's not going to and you know it it, mm-hmm. it was worth the risk right
0: absolutely absolutely i don't got anything else right now
1: that's okay. Yeah. That's good. I,
0: you, we, you, I think we did, we did a lot. I think we did. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay, so uh, you want anything? Okay, so how about this? Coming down the pipe, anything that um, you're, you're sort of curious about, fired up about something, it could be EDU, non-EDU, props you want to throw out to someone that's just like, you know what, I just I need to throw down a thanks. What... Uh, something to push forward, push some positive forward into the next.
1: Well, you know what, I I think that is the essence of the challenges of our political times is that it's really easy to feel very downtrodden and to feel very, um, potentially hopeless, um, with some of the, um, challenges that, that we're facing, um, in education. And I think, you know, what's so great about, um, I'm sure this can be said about many, many communities, but I'm going to say it specifically about the school library community, is that the number of um, uh, connections that I've made, whether it's directly through the Ontario School Library Association or just meeting other um, people who are involved in school libraries across the province, um, just sort of to, to that entire community. Because I do think it's a community that is going through some change and struggle and really has been for, you know, upwards of 30 years um, there's been some tension around how libraries are staffed and you know how boards choose to use school library funding and it is not something that the government any government not just this particular one check and balances um they just send the money to the boards and then the boards can spend it as they see fit but what I am always inspired by is um the school library staff and that community and how well they support each other and how well they share. So that transparency we were talking about, you know, sometimes they're sharing for self accolades, which I've acknowledged, you know, I have that ability, you know, in some zones. But I find the whole entire school library community, they share genuinely because they've tried something and they want someone else to know about it or because they want someone's feedback of where to go next. And so the relationships um, within that community, um, to me, are the reason that I am, if you want to use this word, brave enough to try some of the things that I try, because they've helped me to understand that um, that there's a support system when you say, you know, I want to try this. I'm not sure where to begin. You're going to get 15 or 20 responses from the not just the library community, but particularly that community. They tend to be very, very engaged practitioners. And so their level of engagement ups my level of engagement. So I think watching for any ways within our own schools and our own school boards that we can advocate for our school libraries, um, that advocacy is going to become more and more important um, in our current times and just acknowledging that and and pushing that forward, expecting high, you know, high levels of practice from our staff who are running our school libraries, but also really um, making those relationships meaningful and connecting with them. I think that would be a big, a big aspect of where I am in my own learning is I couldn't be where I am in terms of getting a platform and having those conversations without all of those other voices uh, pushing me and and guiding me very
0: nice very nice who um wrong lead where or by what method <laughs> would you like people to reach out and connect mm. actually can I, I i think i could um, change that question can i can i play with that question for a second yes so one of the things um you know it's it's a it's a thing that i notice right now in in some of my um edu spaces is that, um, you know, different platforms are being used for kind of different things. It's really easy, I think, to project your purpose onto other people's purpose. So if I use Twitter as an example, there are individuals there that that's just that's like their outgoing mailbox all the time. They're not receiving there. And then in other spaces they receive and they kind of they, they compartmentalize They the individual wants to decide the where, when and how their communication. So in the past, um, I've just kind of said it kind of openly without much analysis. It's, you know what, this is like number 22 on the list of things that, you know, I thought I should do on a podcast, as in sort of offer up at the end of the podcast, the question to the guest, you know, where would you like to be connected? So one of the interesting spaces, though, is I've never actually asked the person if they want to be connected, now, Would now I'm, like not, I'm not I'm not right. pressing that right. button here, but it's just observing my own language because right. it was such a loaded assumption that somebody actually.
1: But I guess there is an assumption that, it, and I get that if you're transparent enough to be willing to have this kind of dialogue on a podcast, you're probably open to Maybe. some kind of conversation Maybe. with others. But it's a good it's a good thing to reflect on. I agree. I totally see that.
0: I feel like I've completely pressurized the question now for you. <laughs> so, um, Jen do you do you want to be contacted after this? And you're like, no, I'm no, 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 no.
1: <laughs> well, listen, we've had this conversation. <laughs> no, of course. no. Um, so um, probably the most efficient way is probably how you and I have done it, which is Twitter. Um, so is that
0: the space you enjoy? Is that <laughs> would you say you you enjoy those?
1: I do. I. Do like it? I when I first joined it, I didn't because I was still a person who didn't have data on my phone. So mm. immediacy of it, I, Instagram and Twitter did not appeal to me in the past because if I couldn't do it immediately, I didn't see the point. Where something like a Facebook, which has its own you know issues, I realized it felt more like a slow burn. Like you could go on and hang out in your living room where I my perception of Twitter and even more so of something like Instagram is it's Insta. If you can't post it while you're still there, don't post it. And I'm not saying that's true of other people. This was my perception. So Twitter has evolved for me. I didn't know Twitter was going to become a professional uh, hub for me. So you'll see, you know, my Twitter account is busy. Um, and, um, definitely has lots of stuff about my family and stuff too, but it definitely has become a professional tool that I didn't know I was going to have. And I really value it. I, I do really value it. There are times I pull away a little bit. I don't do a dramatic, I'm leaving for three days post, but sometimes I just kind of like take a breather and go, I'm taking a breather, but um I do find it, I have literally met people through it and had opportunities through it. So I, I do find, I do really like it. Now also in my current role as the OSLA president, like my email and everything is live right on the OLA site. And so people really reach out to me in a wide variety of ways. Um, but I would say it's probably the most, the, the most effective to quickly just go, Hey, like I heard this, I you saw you speak or I did this and, you know, can we connect? But I do recognize that there are people who are not comfortable with those platforms. So I'm also very comfortable with my email going out and that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to state them or do you just going to add them <laughs> here? Like, <is> that <laughs> like a, do I, need to- I?
0: I, it's, you can, you can, I you declare it and you declare, you know, declare it makes it real. Okay. Um, but the other part too is like, I always, I include, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I put yeah. it into my, it's not even a blog anymore. It's just, yeah. I'll put, you know, Jen Brown the can word. be found at. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I just got to put in the deets, just the deets. So, yeah, whatever, so whatever you say right now, I will include.
1: Okay. So my Twitter is at Jen Mac Brown, two ends in the Jen. I'm one of those. Um, <laughs> and then, um, the email that most people contact me at is jennifer.m.brown at, pdsb.com Or sorry, pl- plsb.com. i have Too many peel emails. PLSB.com. Yeah. And that's <laughs> no, <just> case
0: <laughs> How about DM me? That last <laughs> time. Just just to-
1: yeah, 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 D- yeah, dm me the but those, for those details- aren't social media people, I'm not sure how they would have found your podcast, but in case they get sent it, the email's okay too. So it's totally okay. yeah.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. It's funny, it just it brings to mind I did I did one um ed tech session. Yeah, I, I said, okay, I'm going to talk about podcasting. I'm going to go do an ed tech thing. I can weave in some of the digital tools that I have. And in, in the sessions that I did, I said, I said to the people, I said, um, here's where I can be contacted. And I actually, I gave my mobile number too. And and it was a funny moment because people were sort of looking at the screen and I could see them tracking, you know, I did the Google slides things and I could see them looking and they were sort of pulling out their phone and they automatically pulled out socials to start. Right, and then I right. saw a few people kind of stop and yeah. they actually paused on it for a moment. It was like, and oh, I have, I've had yeah. two people that have actually messaged me from that, but it's, it's, and I'm saying I, I it was a risk who, who knows how it was being perceived, but I did notice that some people kind of got hung on that, like where they want their learning to occur.
1: Yeah. It and I think that own their own fears about, the things we've been conditioned not to do right like how yeah. many parents have I given my cell phone number to like lots, right? But that's not what our union would tell us to do, but that's, but of course I do. Like I've got your kid at, on a, you know, at, like I run a Shakespeare program at my school. So I've got a sh- kid at a Shakespeare performance till 10 o'clock at night and you're picking them up. Yeah. You're going to have my cell phone number cause you need me. And so are my students are going to have my cell phone number. Like, but that has shifted for me. Like, but, but I know that that's not everybody's comfort level and I've never had, I've never had an issue. I've never had a parent... You know, send me something terrible or a kid or like I've just never. And maybe if I'd had that lived experience, then I would change my practice. I I don't know. But yeah,
0: I I spoke to one person afterwards. who said that they um it was in the second session. I got to do two sessions, mm-hmm. and they asked. They said, you know, that was why you know what that was kind of strange. She's like, is it a, right. is it cool? Can I text him? Like, yeah. I said most times I'm carrying my phone in my pocket. I'm more sensitized to hearing my my, my text um, notification. Um, And if I can answer, I will answer. I said, but part of the reason too, is I feel in some ways beyond, once you get beyond the risk, it's, it's, you are getting, I am getting closer to you. So I actually, it's you more of a person than let's say a social media hub where it kind of exists away. Like this is, this is the, you know, apart from email, it is more of a one-to-one relationship. And the choice becomes, are you willing to share your number with me?
1: Right, right, or your
0: identity with me. Exactly. So I mean, yeah, it was it was an interesting moment.
1: No, that is interesting.
0: So let's get reflective, yo. All right, <laughs> let's get back to uh, what day is it? Thursday, Friday? Friday. Enjoy your um, enjoy your your uh, your family. Enjoy Thank your you reading time and everything else that Thank you're going to be messing around with when you hop Thank off here. You. And I tell you flat out, this was. Like a very long engagement. Two <laughs> years in the make and happy to connect yes, with you though. Yes,
1: yes, me too. Thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. And I'm sure we're gonna keep we'll keep we'll keep connecting sure. on the TV hallways.
1: For right? sure. Cool. Take All care right. of yourself. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye.